The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Welcome, everyone, to today's Barron's Live uh, Market Watch edition. I am Rob Schroeder, and I'm the DC Bureau Chief for Market Watch. And today, I'm delighted to welcome our two guests uh, to talk about the outlook for the midterm elections and uh, what the outcome might mean for the economy uh, and your money. Uh, so today I'm joined by Ben Colton, who is the Director of Research at Beacon Policy Advisors in Washington, uh, and Professor Melissa Miller, who is an expert on politics at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Ben, Melissa, welcome to you both. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Um, so, Melissa, I, I'd like to start with you, um, and, and I want to throw out um, a couple of questions, or a couple of numbers, rather. Um, first, the uh, the betting market predicted uh, is giving Republicans currently a 76% chance uh, of taking the Senate in the midterms. Uh, and for the House, it's even higher, uh, 87% at last check. Uh, why is it looking so good for the GOP? Well, it's always the case that the president's party virtually always loses seats in the midterm elections. So there's an historical precedent. Uh, the incumbent president's party almost always loses seats in the midterms. If you go back to World War II and look at the average seats lost by the incumbent president's party in the House, it's 26 seats on average lost by the party of the president. And in the Senate, it's four seats on average. Um, so the Republicans in 2022 don't even have to approach those averages to retake control of the House where they just need a net gain of five seats or the Senate where they need a net gain of one seat. So historical precedent is on the side of the Republicans. Then you combine that with the really low approval rating of President Joe Biden. It's at just 41% now. And you can see why the history and the president's approval rating both point to big Republican gains. Mm -hmm. Now, to put this in perspective, um, at this point in Barack Obama's first term, he had higher approval. It was 48, 49%. And yet he took what he called a shellacking, losing 63 seats in the House in 2010 and six in the Senate. So really, things do not look good for the Democrats. And I haven't even talked about the fact that redistricting post-2020 census really has helped strengthen the Republicans' position, as well as the surging inflation rate, which certainly helps the Republicans. Right. That's a good segue to what I want to ask uh, Ben about next. Um, ben, I wanted to drill down on, on the economic environment. Um, you know, President Biden uh, recently called inflation his top economic, uh, rather his top domestic priority. Um, and he's taken steps to uh, ease prices on things uh, like gasoline by uh, releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, of course, Democrats control Congress uh, and, and lawmakers have approved uh, billions of dollars in economic aid uh, since the pandemic began. So why aren't Democrats getting more credit? Well, Biden and Democrats, they're not just dealing with a crisis of inflation. 
they're also dealing with a crisis of confidence. And that harkens back to another president who was struggling with inflation back in, in the 70s when President Carter, he gave his infamous crisis of confidence speech. And he recounted how a governor told him he was not leading the nation, he was just managing the government. And that's just an all too common sentiment shared about the president today. Joe Biden is seen as managing a declining nation rather than leading a promising one. And it goes against what Biden was elected as, as a modest and a moderate person to bring a return to normalcy after a once in a century pandemic and, and a once in a lifetime reality TV president. But that return to normalcy Biden promised was just, it hasn't come, come to fruition. Even before inflation became front and center, there was the rise of the Delta variant and there was the bungled withdrawal from Afghanistan. And now with once in a generation inflation, there's low voter and consumer sentiment today that matched the sentiment during Carter's presidency. American optimism about their personal finances is on the decline and distrust of institutions of power is, is high. And so everything remains not normal in the minds of Americans. And they're just not interested or responsive to listening to Biden or Democrats explain what they have accomplished so far. It just goes to the Washington adage, uh, if you're explaining, you're losing. And right now, just Democrats are, are losing the message. Melissa, um, can you help us understand how how voters um, are approaching the midterms? We, we've heard from from then about um, you know what the Democrats are trying to do in Congress, what the president's trying to do. But when you look at voter behavior, um, what's top of mind right now? Is is it inflation? Uh, you know, a possible recession, um, abortion rights, crime. Uh, what do you think is driving uh, the midterms this time around? Well, let me start by saying what always drives the midterms or in virtually every midterm election, um, and that's pocketbook issues. The economy really is a driver of vote choice, and that's based on decades of political science research. Occasionally, there will be an exception. The 2002 midterms immediately after 9-11 were about national security. But for the most part, voters vote based on these pocketbook issues. Fortunately, Gallup is a great source for what's on the top of minds of voters. Every month they ask a random sample of adult Americans, what's the most important problem facing the United States? And they let voters just volunteer what's on their mind. What we've seen is since January, a 19 percentage point increase in respondents saying the economy or economic issues. That's a big increase. Now what's driving it? Well, voter, uh, those respondents are saying a lot of things, right? Some are saying wages, um, but what's really driving that 19% increase is a surge in people mentioning inflation generally and a surge in people mentioning gas and fuel prices. So I think that 2022 will not be an exception. I think the economy and pocketbook issues will drive voters. There's one caveat, and that is what appears to be the imminent overturning of Roe versus Wade. We could see that that drives a big democratic surge when um, women's rights to abortion are overturned, as all indications are they will be in June or July. Okay, um, Ben, we're, we're here to talk about the midterms, of course, but there, there's a lot there um, in what Melissa said that we can chew on. Even right now, uh, there's about a half year to go uh, until the midterms. W with Democrats still in control of Congress, um, do you think they can get anything uh, across the finish line um, that may bolster their chances? Um, can they do anything, for example, uh, to help tame inflation? If there was a, a, a politically palatable policy Democrats could employ to, to tame inflation, uh, 
they would have done it yesterday, but, but there isn't. I mean, real deflationary policy would require taming consumer demand, and no politician wants to be accountable for that. So when it comes to taming inflation, the center is not Capitol Hill or the White House. It's a couple blocks away from the White House at the Federal Reserve. But the key for Democrats is to rejigger their, their long-held policy priorities for the current moment. Uh, this is not just for voters, but for, for the other President Joe, a.k.a. Senator Joe Manchin. So that means calling Build Back Better, their reconciliation plan, not transformational, but deflationary and deficit reducing. It means calling executive action on student debt forgiveness, inflation relief. And it means calling China competitiveness legislation something that's shoring up supply chains and supply side imbalances. Now, will any of these uh, measures tame inflation in the near term? No. I mean, student debt forgiveness is, is actually inflationary. But I believe Democrats, they do have uh, some success in, in all three areas before the midterms. And so for reconciliation, there's a universe of, of say, $1 to $1.5 trillion in offsets, whether that's Medicare drug pricing reform or tax increases on corporations on the wealthy that can get Manchin and Senator Kirsten Sinema's support. And this would be supplemented with, say, some clean energy tax incentives and, and possibly bolstering the Affordable Care Act. And then both parties see uh, see an advantage in trying to get China competitiveness legislation passed uh, before the August recess. And that includes about $50 billion uh, for semiconductors. And then Biden has been setting the tone for a means-tested student debt relief, something in the, the $10,000 range. And that could an announcement can come in, in, in the coming weeks before the current moratorium on payments lapses. I don't see any of these actions as taming inflation or really the general anti-democratic midterm environment. But it is a good narrative for Democrats to have, if not in 2022, then as the policies get implemented and felt by kind of the, the, the broader electorate come 2024. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I, at this point, I'd like to remind uh, folks who are watching uh, that you can send in questions and Ben or Melissa or I will try to answer them and discuss them. Uh, I do see that we have a few coming in already. And um, a viewer named Max is asking about uh, stagflation uh, and the consequences of that. Now, uh, that is a word that has popped up uh, sort of in the political discourse recently. So Melissa or, or Ben, um, is that something that uh, you two have heard about um, or voters are talking about and see as, as something that's, that's on the horizon here? Um, or has that not uh, popped up too much, that kind of word? I haven't seen it much. I'm going to defer to Ben on this. My view is inflation is on the minds of all voters, and that's because every time they go to the grocery store, make any purchase, whether it's online or at a brick and mortar place, they put fuel in the in the gas tank. They are thinking inflation. Yeah, well, we heard uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen mentioned the possibility of stagflation. And it's it certainly that's the that's the, the concern is that you know, the Federal Reserve, they're trying to, to do this, this, this soft landing of, of, of increasing rates and bringing down inflation without causing the economy to go into a recession. And the track record is, is not great, um, but uh, there, there, there is some you know, strong demand and strong balance sheets from, from consumers. But it kind of gets back to the point is, do Democrats, you know, in, in their hopes of, of having the Fed kind of come to the rescue, do they take a bitter pill now or do they have uh, kind of the Fed stay behind the, the curve and, and things become worse. So I did the, the, the corollary to, to Jimmy Carter and Jimmy Carter's, you know, the Federal Reserve, uh, his, his chair was very much behind the curve until Paul Volcker came in uh, and uh, shot up interest rates. But that was in the, the year before his, his reelection. 
And so the hope for Democrats, again, it's not for 2022. I think it's just, it's, it's very hard for them to come back, but it's just to take a bitter pill now to try to bring down inflation, raise rates, and that may include a bumpy landing, and that may include some stagflation, but doing it in 2022 or early 2023 can maybe kind of harken back to, to President Ronald Reagan when, when he was facing with uh, this high inflation and then also a recession as well. But the rates with uh, Paul Volcker doing the, uh, raising rates in 1980 and 1981 kind of led to uh, a, a booming economy that led to kind of the morning in America campaign for Reagan in, in 1984 for his reelection. And so I think that's the hope uh, that, that Democrats will have in kind of trying to deal with a potential stagflation. Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. So, Melissa, you're in a very interesting state uh, for this coming election. Um, you're in Ohio. Uh, the Senate race there is quite interesting uh, with J.D. Vance uh, on the Republican side, Tim Ryan uh, on the Democratic side. Um, thinking specifically but not exclusively about, about the economy, um, what are some of the economic, what are some of the arguments that you're hearing there? What are the, what are they saying to voters? And do you think that the, that race is representative of a bigger narrative this season? So they both are focused over, well, not quite overseas, I guess in the case of Tim Ryan, the Democrat, it's all about China and J.D. Vance um, for the Republican, it's all about Mexico. It's all about that Mexican border. Let me start with um, Tim Ryan. He's a Democrat in the um, in the lines of uh, Sherrod Brown, very much about the working class and, and raising the working class. His focus has been China. In fact, one of his first ads during the primary, just it was it said China like a dozen times in the ad, and really um, said it's us versus China. And his focus, his advertising is all about bringing manufacturing jobs back to Ohio. Um, so he's all about manufacturing jobs, bringing them back to Ohio and seeing China as, as the bad guy here. J.D. Vance, on the other hand, he's really um, running an America first campaign in the manner of Donald Trump, who endorsed him and boosted him from third, to, third or fourth place to first place in winning that nomination. He's focused a little less on um, jobs, although he says it's important to bring jobs back to Ohio. He's focusing more on immigrants at the Mexican border, illegal immigrants getting into this country, drugs getting into this country. He's really veering toward an emphasis on building the wall more than on speaking to directly to pocketbook issues um, like jobs, bringing manufacturing jobs here. What neither candidate is really talking about, which surprises me, is inflation. Um, to me, that is going to be the, it's the big issue heading into November. Now, this race has just left the primary stage. So they've got some months. J.D. Vance is doing a lot of fundraising um, right now because he had a very contested primary to get through. Um, so we'll see what they have to say. One thing I will say that I think is a warning um, not just to J.D. Vance, but to Republicans, they're going to be tempted to run on cultural issues, to run on issues like building the wall, critical race theory, transgender bathrooms, transgender kids in sports, stuff like that. I think it's a mistake based on what we know about what really drives vote choice. While running on those kinds of cultural issues can appeal to the base, they don't need to worry about the base. They need to win the independent voters in the middle. And I think it's going to be those pocketbook issues that do it. 
see. Thank you, Melissa. Um, ben, let's assume that that Republicans take both the the House and Senate um, in November. Um, so Senator Rick Scott uh, of Florida, who heads the uh, the Senate campaign arm of, of the GOP, um, he's authored a, a very widely discussed proposal. Uh, it would impose a tax uh, increase on on many Americans. Um, it also opens the door for cutting uh, Social Security and Medicare. Um, is this uh, the kind of thing that we can expect uh, if the GOP uh, dominates Congress after, uh, next year? Yeah, I, I'd say Senator Rick Scott is, is speaking for, for Rick Scott, uh, someone angling to be the third or fourth most likely Floridian to win the GOP presidential nomination in, in 2024. I'd say his position on entitlements is just not part of mainstream Republicanism or something to expect if they take back control of Congress. Um, if they do take back, I mean, there's limited partisan policies Republicans can pass that Biden won't veto. And beyond the traditional oversight and hearing risks uh, that will occur, there are two things that I'm looking at, the traditional GOP and the new GOP. I'd say in the traditional GOP, it's defending or extending their top legislative victory this past decade in the, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So several provisions have or are about to expire, interest deductibility, 100% bonus depreciation, and all the individual and pass-through provisions expire at the end of 2025. And so Republicans certainly will try to find ways to extend these provisions. And maybe there's some bipartisan agreement for extension that includes Democratic priorities like low-income housing tax credits or even the child tax credit. Uh, but for the new GOP, uh, it's, it's a more kind of Trumpian one. It, it's spearheaded in the House, which is often kind of the forefront of policy. And so the campaign platform of today uh, usually becomes the policy platform of tomorrow. And that platform becomes actual law when Republicans next have unified control of government, perhaps as soon as 2025. And so it really does bear watching, like what are House Republicans proposing uh, for, for these midterm elections? And so Kevin McCarthy, who is uh, the aspiring speaker, is taking a cue from former speaker Newt Gingrich in developing a campaign platform called Commitment to America. And so there are several areas of focus um, for this. It's taking on China, taking on big tech, pushing deregulations, promoting American energy and even some climate solutions, and then taking on so-called wokeness whether in schools, regulations, uh, regulators, or, or corporations. And so in a, in a less politically uh, polarized world, there, there's some actual overlap between Republicans and Democrats here, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if items like wokeness, fossil fuels, and conservative bias on social media grab more attention. So it's just something we'll have to see. Uh, what's the, the relationship uh, between Republicans and, and Joe Biden? Is it acrimonious uh, mostly, or is there some, some room for collaboration? You know, um, Ben, Melissa, that actually gives me an opportunity to go back to uh, a viewer question. There's lots of them coming in, um, and either of you can can take a crack at this if you like. But Ben, this actually went to something that you just said. Um, Ian asks if do you think uh, once the Republicans become the majority in Congress, um, they'll pass legislation to increase uh, oil and gas pipelines and, and permits? Um, he says petroleum is, is a key component. Uh, of inflation, um, which I think is is a truism. Um, so is that something, uh, Ben, I would ask you that you see, and Melissa, uh, can you talk about how gas prices are are playing a role here in voters thinking? Without a doubt. Um, I think it's, it's, it's passing legislation in, in, in the House. It's also going against uh, some of the, the regulatory policies that uh, the Biden administration are trying to promulgate. So let's the, the climate disclosure from the SEC. Uh, there's a lot of pushback uh, by, by, by Republicans. And so whether that's using the Congressional Review Act to try to overturn it, 
um, or just holding a lot of hearings. Uh, it just the question though is that there is room for collaboration for like energy independence. Uh, it's just like just as Democrats when they hold control, they're not really looking to to work with Republicans. It, it's more about messaging, um, and and with Republicans is it's more about kind of providing a contrast with 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 Biden and kind of we'll, we'll see where kind of the, the the gas prices are come come next year. Um, but is there room for for doing changes in kind of the permitting process um, in exchange for maybe some more uh, clean energy tax incentives or something like that. And that's always kind of the the the, the challenge in, in, in when both sides want to do something, which is kind of promoting domestic energy in, in America, but kind of the, the ends is not quite the same. And so is there someone like a Senator Joe Manchin or a Senator Lisa Murkowski um, who, are, who are willing to kind of bridge the divide or is there just uh, kind of a, a bridge too far in terms of coming to an agreement on on energy policy when it's such a political hot potato. Melissa, mm -hmm. what do you think? Is is talk about um, bringing energy prices down music to voters' ears? I think it's music to voters' ears, but until they actually see the price coming down at the pump, it's just noise. And um, I, I do think that unless gas prices come down, which in part has to do with domestic policy, but also in part has to do with the war in Ukraine, um, that which is you know outside of the control of the de Democrats and the Republicans. Um, the other thing that's complicating is that this is summer travel season. And so here we have the surge in gas prices that's coinciding with people wanting to get in their cars. Um, there are many people who didn't take the kinds of vacations they wanted to take in the last two years. We saw a little bit more vacation travel last summer, certainly than summer 2020. I, I would expect we'd even see more, but for the price of gas. So it's really kind of a lethal combination of factors that are just not good politically for the party in power. This gives me the opportunity to say um, that, you know, one of the issues for the Democrats is they control both the House, the Senate and the White House. And so it's it's one of those periods of unified government where whether or not um, you know, Joe Biden, for instance, has, you know, can really do much about the inflation rate, as Ben has pointed out, you know, that's really more of a Fed issue. Um, voters will blame the party in power and the Democrats clearly hold power right now with all three in control. I'd like to plug a piece on this exact subject by my colleague, Victor Clytus, who I believe has talked to both of you on occasion. He wrote a good piece for Market Watch on exactly this topic about what presidents can and can't do uh, on inflation and um, how the Fed uh, is more, of course, in the driver's seat. Um, le let me ask, um, Melissa, a, a stock market question. On Friday, um, the S&P 500 uh, briefly dipped into a, a bear market. Um, stocks are down again today. Um, would it behoove um, either party, you think, to make uh, this issue part of their campaigns. Um, you know, earlier this month, um, Congressman Jim Jordan, uh, who's an Ohio Republican, he tweeted that, quote, your 401k uh, misses President Trump, uh, end quote. Um, is this sort of thing um, something that you think we can hear more of, um, you know, with the market sliding uh, or, or not? You know, I do think that Jim Jordan and other Republicans will make a campaign issue of this, and I think it will resonate among some of the middle class and certainly 
all upper middle class voters, um, but not everybody has a 401k. So I think in combination with talking about the stock market struggles, um, addressing inflation with every voter in combination with that, that will also resonate with everybody. A point I made earlier um, is that I think the temptation for Republicans will be to fight the culture wars. Um, and I think, you know, there's a there's a real pull to do that because um, the Trump base of the Republican Party is the most enthusiastic and energized base, uh, portion of the Republican Party, and they respond really well to culture issues. But to win in November, um, I think that both parties need to reach out. What I'd say to the Democrats is that um, they will have to speak to inflation. They can't ignore it. They are the party in power, as I said before. Um, and I think the kinds of any kinds of tangible progress that the Democrats can make can only help. As Ben said, how, however, though, it could be that they've got to take a bitter pill now and it could be um, not until 2024 um, that Democrats stand to gain from any any steps that are taken now. Ben, let me put that same question to you. I mean, do you think that um, stock market uh, going down as much as it has is this going to be a factor uh, going into the uh, going into the election in November? Just as a, as a reference, I think President Trump he believed a good market makes a good presidency. President Biden believes a good presidency makes a good market. Mm -hmm. And I think Biden's view is more typical of presidents who understand kind of the relative futility of chasing the market. It, it, it's certainly a talking point uh, for Republicans to employ. And I, I think it, you know, it, it, it does have, have, have some legs, especially with kind of retirements. But, you know, a 401k is not necessarily something people see front in mind every day. But I just, I don't expect the Democrats to take the baits. I mean, you even see some progressive regulators or lawmakers, they even have kind of schadenfreude at a declining market. Just the focus is more on bolstering labor, labor and consumers and not capital. I mean, Democrats are even kind of moving forward with a 1% corporate buyback tax and, and reconciliation. So I, I just, I don't see this as, as something that, you know, Democrats are, are looking to engage in and, and maybe Republicans make a point, but it's just, it's just not top of mind. And I think there's a, there's a paradigm shift just from even a couple of years ago when there was a real desire to kind of have a bailout to the markets um, from, from both Congress and the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. We're getting uh, a little bit close to the end here, um, but I do want to—I do have a few more questions for both of you too, um, Melissa. Let's 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 fast forward to um, election night. Um, do you think uh, what are some of the key races that you're going to be watching um, to determine um, control? And uh, are we going to have an early night, so to speak, uh, about knowing who's going to be in charge? Well, I think you might as well start brewing the coffee now because you'll need a lot of it. I think it will be a long night. On the Senate side, there are about five, just a handful of toss-up Senate races. And these are considered toss-ups both because of the polling being so close, the polling that we have now, as well, these are states that Biden won very narrowly and in several cases flipped from the Republican to the Democratic column. So I'll be watching that Pennsylvania Senate race between Democratic John Fetterman and a yet-to-be-determined Republican. That looks like it's going to a recount in Pennsylvania. That's a state that Biden won by just a point. Um, the Senate race in Georgia, um, there we have a primary today um, in the state of Georgia. That's a state that Biden flipped. He won it by less than a percentage point. Same goes with Arizona. Mark Kelly, the Democrat, is the incumbent. 
um, up for re-election. Nevada, there's a Democrat, Catherine Cortez Masto, um, who's now considered to be in a toss-up. So Wisconsin, we've got Republican Ron Johnson um, apparently at risk. So there are the five Senate races to watch in those five states. There are about 30 toss-up states in the House. I will not bore listeners with going through them, but I'll tell you of one interesting one that's here in my backyard. That's the 9th Congressional District in Ohio. The longest-serving woman in the U.S. House of Representatives is Marcy Kaptur. She's going to try to defend that seat. The Republicans nominated um, a candidate who's never run for office before, J.R. Majewski. He attended the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th. And he's perhaps best known for spray painting a giant portrait of Donald Trump in his backyard on the lawn that you could see uh, from drones in the air. Um, I will be watching that one. What's interesting there that you might look at some of these other toss-up house races is where the GOP nominated a real um, Trump-aligned, untested candidate, so not a mainstream GOP candidate. How well do those candidates do? In a, amongst a general electorate, it remains to be seen. Okay, just real quickly for both of you, um, if you have one or two uh, quick comments about, do you see any uh, surprises um, coming up that could buoy Democrats' chances in the fall or somehow change the equation? I mean, is there a sort of, not October surprise, of course, but November surprise? Uh, let's say if Russia ends the war in Ukraine, inflation goes down, uh, or something like that. Any surprises? Then uh, you first, and then Melissa. Yeah, I just say, I don't think Democrats can win the midterms, but Republicans can lose them. And that's particularly in the Senate. So that comes down to candidate quality. So will Herschel Walker, the presumptive GOP nominee in, G in Georgia, stand up to increase scrutiny? And the same goes for like Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. And there's questions about who the Republicans nominate in Arizona and New Hampshire. And when the elections are a referendum on the national environment, Republicans win. But when it's a choice between a mainstream Democrat and a controversial Republican, it becomes more competitive. So that's something I'm, I'm watching. Great. Melissa? Believe it or not, I'm going to look for that June or July surprise. It's not really a surprise. We know it's coming. The Supreme Court will, all, all indicators suggest, will be overturning Roe versus Wade. I expect to see tens of thousands of people protest that decision when it becomes final. And the big question then is, can Democrats capitalize on that and really use the energy that that, um, that uh, dismissal, the, the elimination of the right to abortion is definitely going to engender? Can Democrats really harness it and organize around it and make a difference in terms of their prospects in November? Thank you, uh, Melissa. And Melissa, Ben, thank you both very much. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. Um, this is all the time we have for today. Uh, I want to thank the audience, too, for uh, tuning in. Uh, and before I go, uh, I would like to remind viewers uh, to tune in for our next episode tomorrow, which is going to be on annuities and retirement. Um, Market Watch's retirement uh, reporter, Alessandra Melito, uh, and Michael Fink, who is with the Alliance for Lifetime Income, uh, are going to talk about uh, when annuities are appropriate um, and why they might be misunderstood and how to find the right one. Uh, but for today, I want to again thank uh, my guests, Ben and Melissa, and thank you all for listening. Uh, have a good day, everybody. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.